Take your uh, Bible, hopefully you brought one with you, Uh, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Recap last week, just really quickly, there were some important things that we talked about last week that I want to just recap and hit again. Um, it, It became clear last week as we talked and as we dug in that there were two kind of differing views of how to approach scripture, eisegetical and exegetical. And we saw pretty quickly that the exegetical approach is the right approach. It is the best view of scripture. Um, putting our opinions above God's word seems to be sometimes common practice in our culture today. But when we do this, we're actually elevating our own understanding above God's and that's not okay. Um, Instead of starting with our opinions, instead of doing that, we this approach, the exegetical approach, starts with where it should, the biblical text. It starts with Scripture, and then it lets that speak for itself. The Bible shapes our opinions, not the other way around. This is helpful for understanding difficult passages in God's Word, like we're looking at, yes, last week and today. But it's also necessary, as we talked about last week, to be approved workmen who are not ashamed. And this is why we gather on Sunday evenings with the Iwana kids and teach them memory verses. That is the main thrust of our children's program. Teach them God's word because that's what gives them the foundation to go and understand what they read in the future. So we talked about how the coming of Christ is not going to be a secret thing, right? Lightning of vultures. Some of your translations say eagles. Uh, they, they all come from the raptor family of birds. And so eagles, vultures, lightning, these things are public things. You can see them from a long way. Lots of people understand um, them coming and it was going to be public and Christ's judgment was going to be quick. This is how Jerusalem was destroyed. We talked about that last week too. Just kind of in the blink of an eye, very quickly. Verse 29 reminded us that the next major movement in the history of the world is Christ coming back, Christ's second coming. And Jesus made this statement. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The things of this world are fading. I think that's hopefully pretty abundantly clear at this point. Uh, So putting our hope in the things of this world is not wise. It's, it's, it's wrong. So this brings out the truth that just to remind us of that God's word, the truth of God's word is permanent. Heaven and earth, things of this world are going to pass away, but God's word is permanent. Christ is coming back to gather his children from all over the earth. And the question that we ended last week was, are you ready for that day? Are, am I ready? Are we ready for when he returns? So today our focus shifts from seeing clearly that Jesus will return to what Christians are to be doing until he returns. And so these questions came to my my mind as I was reading this text the last couple of weeks and thinking through what we're going to talk about today. There were this, this kind of a question. What do we do while we wait? In that tension that we just talked about, How do we live? How do we interact with people? What do we say? Um, How do I wait 
for the coming of Christ. And how do I do that well? And you can see the title of today's sermon is Waiting Well. That's what we want to be able to do in this time of tension. So look at your word, Matthew 24, starting with verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. When he comes, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed... And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's, let's go to the Lord before we go any further. Lord, this is a, a serious note that Jesus ends this section with. He says that there are serious consequences for the person who disregards the truth that you are coming again. So, Father, in our time together, it is the desire of my heart that we would understand better how to wait well as we wait in the tension of seeing things happening recognizing that that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and things are happening and and it seems like we're in the last days, Lord. Um, There's a tension there that we want to wait well in. So as we talk today, Lord, may, may that be the cry of our hearts as well as we listen to your word in your name. Amen. So we're going to rewind. Jason talked about 1988. Um, do, do any of you, just by show of hands, do any of you remember that situation? Some of you were adults and you kind of remember when all of that came out. Um, I think there were like f- almost 4 million pamphlets that were written that went out at that time. Um, just a wild amount of information. Um, scratch that, misinformation that went out at that time. Um, so rewind back from 88 to 1782. A guy named William Miller was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Okay? So not anywhere close here. Uh, He became a farmer and a captain in the army in the War of 1812. Okay? In his 30s, he rejected his um, Christian, really Baptist upbringing and turned to deism. Uh, Deism is the belief that, yes, God 
is almighty, or, or at least God is there, and he created things, but there's no divine revelation. This is not his inspired word to us, and he has no involvement in the universe as it is now. He's there, he started the ball, and now it's just rolling without his involvement. So he was, he was kind of drawn away, and uh, in his 30s, um, but in 1816, that number should ring a bell, that's when Ramsey Creek was established, that same year, um, it said that he was converted back to Christianity and began searching the scriptures feverishly for truth, for what it is. Um, he, he became convinced when reading Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, it talks about the cleansing of the sanctuary, and it talks about 2,300 days. So he did some math, and he figured out, you know, time frames and calendars and schedules and those things, and he figured out that that meant Jesus was going to return by March 21st, 1844. Really, the, the year span between 1843 and 1844. Well, we're all sitting here today talking about the Lord Jesus, and so we know that that did not happen. Spring came, spring went, that March of 84, or I'm sorry, 1844, and there was no sign of Jesus. So one of his followers kind of pulled him aside and said, hey, I think you might have gotten your calculations wrong. You'd forgot to factor in such and such. And so he went back to the drawing board and came out with a new date in October of that year of 1844. Well, guess what? That also proved wrong. His followers were ridiculed, um, and there were a lot of them. Um, he became very well known in um, in the East. A lot of speaking engagements at colleges and different things. Uh, lots of big audiences. But at that point, his credibility was was squashed. His followers were ridiculed. I mean, people quit their jobs. People sold their homes. People gave away all their possessions. Farmers left crops standing in their fields unharvested because they were convinced that Jesus was going to come back that October. Now, interestingly enough, we know that didn't happen, but interestingly enough, out of that what is actually called the great disappointment, out of that situation actually came the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? Now, I don't want to poke fun or ridicule or bring this up for any of those reasons. Um, I don't do it lightheartedly. Why I bring it up is because false teachers, false interpretation of Scripture has serious consequences. People's lives were devastated because they listened to a man who claimed to know something that even the Son of God during his time on earth did not know. When leaders in the evangelical world attempt to speak for the Lord, to prophesy a new event, and then it fails to be fulfilled, well, it always ends up being a poor representation of the people God is calling Christians to be every time. Brothers and sisters, be careful who you listen to. And just right up front, I throw myself into that category. Not because I think you should doubt what I say, but because I want you to think critically when we speak. Whoever stands in this pulpit, don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures. Churches in the New Testament were praised for doing that very thing. 
They sought the Scriptures. They didn't take Paul and Barnabas' word for it. They sought the Scriptures. Here's one of the surest signs of a false teacher. They claim to know when Jesus will return. You hear someone come out up with a date, maybe not automatically, but pretty close to it, you should stop listening to them. In verse 4 of this chapter, you can just glance back there if you still got it open. What does Jesus say? Be sure that no one leads you astray. Okay, that's pretty clear. For someone to know when Jesus is coming back would mean, think about this, if they know that when Jesus is coming back, it would mean that they have more divine revelation than Jesus did when he was on this earth. Now, when we, when we put it like that, boy, that seems arrogant to think that way. But Jesus, right off the bat, here in verse 36 that we read together, he says, angels don't know when this is happening. <clears throat> and he says, the Son of Man doesn't know. Now, that's a crazy thought, and I don't want to get too lost in that. I want us to understand uh, Philippians chapter 2 makes it pretty clear that Jesus, in human form, it says that he emptied himself and that he was born in the likeness of men. So his time on earth, he had limited, he limited his knowledge in order to be fully man. Now, that doesn't make him any less God, but he says the Father knows. I don't. In that state, he did not. So if, continuing down this track, this road, if the only sinless man who walked this earth didn't know the date, why would William Miller, or I forget the guy in 1988, why would they think, why would people in 2019 think that they know the date? It's silliness. It's ludicrous. And there's a kind of a more subtle deception here. Because we can look at that and say, haha, that's very funny. That's not going to happen. But there's a, a more subtle deception here that I think we need to be just careful of. And it, it, it's this. Many Christians in today, in America today, honestly, truly believe that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime. Now that may absolutely happen. I certainly don't know when. But we're not guaranteed that that's going to happen. But if you look back, I mean, even starting with the disciples, they thought it was going to happen in their generation, in their time. Now, that's not that big of a deal. Most every Christ follower believes that Jesus is going to come back. The struggle, I think, so oftentimes is trusting the Lord's timing in this, not mine and not yours and not that other guy's. We know he's coming back. We're convinced of that, and we should be. But it's the timing of it all that kind of has us thrown for a loop sometimes. Christ is returning. But understanding the timing of the Lord, understanding that the timing of the Lord is different than ours, honestly, it changes the way that we think about his second coming. And I believe it changes the way that we think about the end of our lives. Think about this. If you thought Christ was returning when you turn 50, or if you're older than 50, think of a number higher than what you are. Um, but if, if you think that it's coming in just the next couple of decades, that, that is going to impact how you teach your kids, what you talk to them about, 
how you perform at your job, what you do with your money, with your possessions, with your things, how you treat the lost world around you. But recognizing that it's God's timing and not mine that's important does something that I think is really important. It reminds me that I'm not the center of the universe. Now, I know you all know that, but sometimes I struggle with that. And I think you probably do for yourself as well. But this reminds us, understanding this reminds us that we're not the most important person in God's big plan for history. It's not us. It's Jesus. And knowing and understanding that God's timetable is different, it changes the way we think about our kids, our families, our friends. It changes the way we think about our involvement in the church, in the body of Christ. It changes the way, really the way we think about evangelism, the work of missions, loving your neighbor, and so many other important things. If you think Christ is coming back in two years, you could have one of two views. Well, I should get to know my neighbor and win him to Christ. Or what does it matter? Christ is coming back in two years anyway. It changes the way that we look at these things. As we look at chapter 24 today and chapter 25 in the coming weeks, I want us to notice a theme that is popping up. Patience. Patience. Jesus uses words like a long time, delay. He says, be ready, keep watch. Now, all of these phrases imply a long delay, a long wait. And so Christians, I want to, I want to be clear on this. Christians, you are being called to wait. You are being asked to wait. A day is coming. Don't get me wrong. A day is coming when all the wrongs will be made right, when sin will be no more. But we don't know when it's here, and it hasn't come yet. Waiting is a concept that you guys really like, right? No. Um, waiting is a concept that human beings resist passionately. Um, we do not like to wait. At some point, I'll give you just a, a glimpse into my life. Um, at some point, around 3 o'clock every afternoon in the Omis house, there is an outcry for snacks. Okay? And make no mistake, lives are at stake here. <laughs> lives are at stake if snacks don't happen at 3 o'clock. I mean, 3.01 and we're pushing it. Um, but and parents, you understand this, if, if, if I say, you know, guys, um, let's just wait a bit longer. We had a late lunch, let's just wait a bit longer. Or if mom says, you know, it's pretty close to dinner time at this point, let's just, let's just not have snack. I mean, you'd think Jesus was coming back right then. Like end of the world stuff was happening in our house. Um, we actually discussed this kind of concept at our Wednesday night family night uh, this past week. We talked about being patient waiting, more specifically, delayed gratification. Okay? Um, this is something, as we discussed, that it has to be taught, doesn't it? We're not born with this instinctive desire to just be okay with waiting for stuff. Any infant in the room will prove that point pretty quickly. We do not like to wait, but what does come naturally is instant gratification, I want it, bring it to me now, and most of the time, there are pretty detrimental effects to that kind of lifestyle. 
to be a Christian, to follow Christ day by day, brothers and sisters, is to live a life of waiting. Of waiting in that tension that we talked about. And it's just not easy, is it? I want to point something else out here, though. It's not just about waiting. It's about how we wait. It's about how we wait. Think back, parents, to the last time you asked your child to wait for something. Okay? Chances are they might wait, but they're not going to wait very well. They're going to, um, you know, I just think about a long car trip. I mean, I've, I've taken, I can't even count how many trips with students from church here. And before we're even out of the parking lot, kids are being snarky and saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Kids do that sort of thing. Um, they, you say, hey, just wait for a second. And they, they keep asking. They interrupt you or they, they start making weird noises. Maybe that's only my kids. I don't know. But they just start making weird, like annoying noises. Um, they just, they don't find very constructive stuff to do while they're waiting. Adults, we're not that different. We do very similar things. Now, maybe you're not making weird noises in a corner somewhere. Hopefully you're not doing that kind of a thing. But we're just as impatient, aren't we? Our problem, though, honestly, is generally worse because we think, well, I'm an adult. I have the right to do that. I can do what I want. And so instead of waiting patiently, we make situations more complicated by pushing things to happen instead of waiting on the Lord's time for those things. Now, the application of this text, we're going to focus on how to wait well, but it's not coming until the end of the message, so you're going to have to wait. I don't want to hear any annoying noises from you as we go. But seriously, it's not going to be that long. I want us to look at, starting, look at verse 37. 37 through 44. Just glance at those, that text again. Jesus starts talking about situations when it's going to happen, when his return is going to come. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be swift, just like what he talked about prior with lightning and vultures. Now he's talking about it like in the days of Noah, like a flood, like a flash flood. Unfortunately, we may get a good picture of this soon with what they're predicting for this river level in the town of Clarksville. Um, Jesus starts talking about a flood in Noah's day. Now, what was the big problem? He doesn't really mention any major moral issues with what the, uh, you know, the people were doing in Noah's day. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving people in marriage. That's not that big a deal, but here's, here's the problem. They were doing those things. They were eating and drinking and living their lives and cared nothing for the things of God. They paid no attention to what God said. And that was evidenced when Noah got in the ark and God shut the door and the water started to come up. And we have to imagine at that point, Noah's hundred plus years of ark building started to sink in to the people that were not in the ark. And they started to realize what was going on, but it was too late. They were being swept away because of their unbelief. And it says here, Jesus says, this is what's going to be like when I come back. 
when Christ returns. People are going to be going about their business as usual, living their lives like nothing is wrong, and then it's going to be too late. This, if nothing else, should spur missions from our midst. Their judgment will not only be swift, but Jesus' story about the wicked servant that's coming up in the next few verses, 45 through 51, teaches us that the judgment that these people receive is permanent. It's forever be cast out into a place of darkness and weeping, gnashing of teeth. So I want to point out something that may go against the grain of what you've been taught. I don't know. But I want to point this out. There's no hint in this text or anywhere else in Scripture that I can find that the Bible teaches that there is going to be a second chance for people to be saved on the day of Christ's return. I don't see it here. I see judgment coming and then it being too late. This shows us that what you do with Jesus today matters for eternity. Think about that. What you do with Jesus today matters in eternity. Jesus says, stay awake in verse 42. Stay awake, guys. Stay awake, ladies. No one knows when it's going to happen. And I like the way he he begins to illustrate this in verses 40 to 51. I think they help us better understand um, what we're supposed to be doing while we wait. I think these are examples of how we wait well. There's a couple examples of how not to wait well. So look at what he says. This is how Jesus lays this out. He says there's going to be men in a field working. He says there's going to be women at a mill working. The master of the house is going to be waiting for an intruder. A wise employee or servant is going to be providing for the master's household well. And a wicked employee or servant is going to be abusing his position of authority. These are the instances, the parables, the examples that Jesus gives of waiting. I want us to notice something about these things. These people are all actively doing something. They're actively following the things that they're supposed to be doing, or they're actively not following the things that they're supposed to be doing. Because when you know the truth and you don't do it, that's doing something. Action is required for the believer. Okay, you hear people talk about this. Well, you're, you're not saved to just sit on a pew, to just warm a pew. And that's absolutely true. That is a biblical mindset to have. Ephesians 2 bears this out. You were created for good works. Good things are waiting for you in Christ. You have a part in that. You have a role in joining with the Father in those things. Now, do we have days and periods and seasons of rest? Absolutely. Our Creator God set that example right from the start, from the garden. Rest. It's good. But I want to be clear that rest does not ever equal laziness. Rest is an intentional act that connects us with the Lord. Now, the men in the field, the women at the mill, the wise employee, they were all doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were working. They were hard at work. They were doing the stuff that God had for them to do. Does doing your work diligently each day mean that you aren't living by faith? 
and hopeful expectation of Christ's return? No, not at all. In fact, this came out in our um, Wednesday night study last week too. And Colin, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to paraphrase what you said. Um, she's looking at me with like deer in headlight eyes. Um, I really appreciated what you had to say Wednesday night because we were talking about the tension between um, managing our, our finances well, being good stewards of our money, and also trusting God. And she pointed out this, this truth that um, being careless with our finances and then expecting God to meet our needs, that's not faith. Just doing whatever we want, living for now, and then saying, oh God, I believe you're going to provide for me when we're really strung out and we don't have any money things left. That's not faith at all. Doing whatever we want, that's just foolishness. Being content with what we have, living within our means and following biblical principles of money managing, that's actually exercising faith because we're doing it the way that God has told us to do it. So I would almost define faith in this way is that faith takes God at his word and puts it into action. That's what real faith is. It's taking God at his word and putting it into practice. So these people that were mentioned, the man in the field, the woman at the mill, the good servant, the good employee, they, they were people that were dedicated to their work while they waited. And we should be too. Scripture has a lot to say about working hard for your employer, Christian employer or not Christian employer, um, and, and how to honor God in your workplace. It should be our aim to do our work as unto the Lord every day. I've talked with many of you about your jobs, and you're in non, non-Christian environments, and there's a lot of stuff that you'd probably just rather not hear, and you just rather not have to deal with. Yeah, that's true. That is the world that we live in, I'm afraid. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. There is a way to honor God in those situations without compromising your beliefs. We need to be aware, I think, though, that if we're in one of those situations where we're, where a lot of non-believers are around us, we need to be aware that if we profess Christ as Savior, they're watching and they're looking and they're evaluating. People are paying attention to you. I think we need to be aware as well that our actions are a reflection of Jesus to people watching. When you say, I follow Christ, your actions should actually follow Christ. I I think we should be quick to admit fault. We should be quick to seek forgiveness. But please don't use the excuse, well, nobody's perfect. That's true. Don't get me wrong. I hear you in that. Um, I, that plays out in my own life and heart every day. But I, I'm fearful that Christians begin to take on this, well, you can't judge me, nobody's perfect mantra, instead of saying, no, you're right. I need to be humbled before the Lord. Thank you for coming to me with a problem in my heart. Saying nobody's perfect, that's an obvious understatement, I think. But we're called to live differently. 
I think the thing is we can't be content with our sin. We can't be okay with our failings. Yes, nobody's perfect, but that's not where I want to stay. I want to keep being challenged, to keep moving on, to be more and more conformed into the image of Christ. Think about Romans eight twenty eight. You guys know that verse. It talks about all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Flip over there for just a second, because most of us tend to forget the verse right after that. That clears a lot of things up. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Starting with verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Man, that is fantastic promise of God. But keep reading. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers in order that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Is it possible that in our trials, that in our challenges in the workplace, God is seeking to conform us more to the image of his son? Because if that's our view then our response to a problem or to sin in our life is very much less going to be, well, nobody's perfect, and much more, may God use this to conform me more to Jesus, the image of your son. That's the point of this text, so that we might be more conformed to Christ. Let me just put it this way. God doesn't work things out in the lives of believers so we can make keep making excuses for our sin. That's not why he makes things good in our life, so that we can keep on doing what we've always done. He makes things right. He does this so that you and I can be molded more and more to the image of the one who embodies holiness and righteousness. And I think, and I'm preaching to myself in this moment, that we should join with God in that pursuit while we wait for Christ's return. The pursuit of being conformed to the image of Christ. Practicing righteousness while we wait, actually according to 1 John chapter 2, proves that we've been born of God. When you pursue holiness and righteousness in this life while we wait for Christ's return, that proves that you are truly saved. But our work as Christians just isn't about what we do 9 to 5, is it? It's not just in the workplace. We see this at the end of Matthew 25. We see, we'll see this at the end of Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. What we do while we wait is important. It matters. And we see this in the Good Samaritan parable in Luke chapter 10. You guys know that story. The priest, the Levite, they come. They see this guy who was robbed and beaten, left for dead. And what do they do? They cross to the other side of the road and they pay him no mind. But the Samaritan, a person hated by the Jews, has compassion, steps down, and at great cost to himself, he helps this man. And he behaved more like a godly person than any of these other Jews did. More than the priest, more than the Levite, this hated Samaritan behaved more like a Christian than any of them. This is the kind of thing we're to be about while we wait 
How do we do that well? The Pharisees asked a real similar question back in chapter 22 of Matthew. If you're still there in 24, just flip back a page. Look at verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them said, a lawyer asked him to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest this is the great and first commandment. And second like it, you should love your neighbor as, you, as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So let me frame the question, how do we wait well? Just a little bit differently. What should we be doing right now to please God? This, in essence, was the same thing the Pharisees were asking. Teacher, what should we be doing to please God? What, how should we keep the law? What's the best thing to do? What does God think is most important? So I think we have to see Jesus' response to those guys in the context of our question today. His answer was what? Love God with everything in you, everything you've got, and love your neighbor like yourself. Now, in the text of Matthew 24, Jesus gives us some things not to do while we, while we wait. He gives two negative, negative examples here of the master of the house whose home was broken into and the wicked servant or employee. Now, had the master of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed up and not let him in. That's an obvious thing. He would have been prepared. But you don't know when something like that's going to happen. No one knows when tragedy is going to strike and we don't know when Christ is returning. So the point of Jesus here is be ready now. Get ready. Choose to follow Christ today because you don't know the future and neither do I. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So get ready now. Jesus talks about the wicked servant. Uh, In some crazy way, this guy virtually forgot that the master was coming home. The master had gone. He was left in charge. He had some authority. And he thought, well, I guess this guy isn't coming back. I don't know what exactly he thought, but he started abusing his fellow servants, misusing his place of authority. He, While he was waiting, he dishonored his master. He squandered his position of authority and was somehow, amazingly, surprised when his master returned. Instead of those things, he should have been busy about his master's business. As a result of his disobedience, the servant was dealt with really severely, really harshly. So let me just encourage us in a couple of things. Number one, while we wait, don't dishonor our master. Let me also encourage us with this today. Um, Stop trying to date Jesus. I don't mean boy and girl dating. I mean like don't try to set a date on his return. He didn't command us to figure out the day he would be back. But he did command us to love God. He did command us to love others, to make disciples. Matthew 28, we're going to get into that. And he did command us to be conformed to his image. Now, there's a positive aspect of trying to date Jesus, attempts to predict Jesus return it it just means that there is this like eagerness to it 
there is a expectation wrapped up in that. I think that's good. I think we can applaud that kind of restlessness for Jesus' return. That's a good thing. We should be praying for his return. But if we're honest, we may not have that kind of feeling about it ourselves. We, be, we may be afraid. We may be ashamed. We may not be looking at it with hopeful expectation. We may be dr- dreading it. We can be assured, though, that even though the claims of men who've said they know when he's coming back, they've been proven wrong for over 2,000 years. But Jesus' words never have, and they never will. They've always been true, and they always will be true. Now, while we wait, as we wrap this up, I want to think about a couple of questions that we wrestle with while we wait. If you knew Jesus was going to come back tonight, March 17th, 2019, if you knew he was coming back tonight at 10 o'clock, would you live today differently? Another question. Will you be found when he returns walking in obedience or wandering around in disobedience? Will you be found loving your neighbor or ignoring them or avoiding them? Will you be found hating sin or will you be found holding on to it? Brothers and sisters, from generation to generation, followers of Christ are called to wait well. We're called to wait well. And if we want to do this, we need, I believe, we need to be actively involved in doing the things that God has called Christians to do. And sitting in a pew is part of that because you are participating in the body of Christ, but it doesn't end there. We eagerly hope and long for the day that Christ comes back, even though we don't know when it's going to be. I just want to say this today. That's okay. Get comfortable with not knowing. It's all right to not know when Christ is coming back. It's okay for my kids to not know every detail of the day that we have planned. They like to know. Sometimes they like to write down what they're going to do that day. And that's a, that's a good thing to have a plan. But they don't have to know this. Guys, we don't have to know every plan of God in order to trust in his promise to us, in order to trust in his goodness. Now, you hear me almost every week quoting theologians, and that's good and right because they're much smarter than I am, and you need to, you need to hear those kinds of guys. But today, I want to quote somebody who's maybe equally as wise and understanding of the human condition, Mary Poppins. Okay? Quote Mary Poppins. Um, we like Mary Poppins in our house. We went and saw the, the newer Mary Poppins Returns movie. And she says a line in that, in that film that I have quoted to my kids. I've worn it out since we saw it. Um, but she says this. She says, we're on the brink of an adventure, children. Don't spoil it with too many questions. Okay? I like that. And I think that applies to what we're going, where we're going today. God's will for our life is not to know all the details about what his plans are. God's will for our life while we wait for Christ's coming is to be a productive member of the body of Christ. It's not complicated. You don't have to get out a calculator and figure out formulas and take passages from Daniel and figure out the days and try to 
you know, project all of these things. That's not it. God's will for your life is to be a productive member of his body. Because when you were saved, you were not saved to just be a Christian by yourself over here and worship alone. You were saved into a body, into a group of people that have been changed and set aside for the purposes of God. This is an adventure, brothers and sisters. Life in the midst, in the tension of waiting, is an adventure. So on this adventure, I'm going to recap and propose that we be about the Father's business in these four ways. Boys and girls, adults, these are the things that Jason pointed out. You've heard me say them already. Number one, love God. It's got to be the starting point. Number two, love others. Number three, make disciples of all nations. Number four, be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. These are the things that we are to be about if we're going to wait well. And in doing these things, we are abiding in him. And that's right where we want to be. I'll steal an illustration from our Sunday school class this morning. They talked about a tea bag. Now, I'm not much of a tea drinker, but if you have a hot cup of tea and you dip the bag, the tea bag in the tea five or six times, you'll get tea from it. But what's it going to be? It's going to be weak. But if you set that tea bag in the midst of that hot water and you let it percolate in there for a little while, you're going to get some strong tea. And if we're abiding in Christ, we need to sit in him under his word and percolate for a little bit. Or we're going to be weak in our doctrine and weak in our practice. Now, lest we end the sermon on a quote from Mary Poppins, let's, let's read from God's word. First uh, John 2, 28 and 29. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to start reading. First John 2, 28 and 29, he says this, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. We ought to be abiding in him. And when we are, We'll be doing our father's business. When you live this way, while you're waiting for Christ's return, you can be confident and excited about Jesus coming back. Not as he says here, not shrink away from his come, from his coming in shame. This is not the response that he wants when he comes back. He wants brothers and sisters. He wants the church to applaud and welcome him in. And that's what we long for and that's what we pray for. So brothers and sisters, what we've talked about this morning, this is how we wait well. We love God with everything we have. We love others as we love ourselves. We make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, and we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So if, if we want to know in that tension, in that, that area of tension, how to live, what do we do when we go to our workplace? What do we go, do when we go to our family gatherings? How do we wait well? This is it. Now, this is a very simplified list, but at least it's a starting point. This is how we wait well. And as a church and as believers, I pray that we would grab hold of this and understand God's will for us in this life while we wait is to be a productive member of the body of Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, um, God, sometimes we're not all that productive. Sometimes we, our heads get blown up with, uh, with pride, like this wicked servant. And we tend to forget that you're coming back. We tend to forget that there's more that's available, that's more coming. Lord, help us not be short-sighted. Help us not be um, blinded by the cares of this world. Instead, Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a a Christ-likeness, that you would mold us to your image. Help us to make disciples. Help us to love others. Help us to love you. And in doing this, Lord, we sit and we abide in Christ in safety and in security and in confidence. So, Lord, if someone is here who does not know what it means to walk with Jesus, to be his disciple, to follow him, to be saved, Father, it is not a complicated process. You have set this in motion so that even a child could understand it. Thank you, Father, because I know no more than a child. And yet you've made this so that anyone who hears the call can respond in faith. So I pray if someone is here who has not trusted Christ, Lord, they would set aside their sin and their love of it. They would say, no, I cannot, I can't fix this sin on my own. I cannot be saved by myself. I need a rescuer, Lord, and that they would turn to Jesus, the only true author, perfecter of faith, Lord, and that he would complete that work in us as we go and as we wait on you with hopeful expectation, Lord, but with active movement. We wait for you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.